All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special cooked up for playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal every playoff game, you're going to be faced with a handful of questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle, and it's free to join. And there are prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? Daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards. Treat yourself to some nation gear or maybe even your favorite jersey. And for the big dogs, the people who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking about real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the daily face-off playoff parlay challenge. Sign up today and play every game day at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the DFO Rundown Podcast with Frank Saravalli and Jason Greger on DailyFaceOff.com. Delivered by DoorDash. Welcome back to the DFO Rundown and welcome in to part two of our best of series here over the holiday season. Tyler Remchuk once again standing in and steering the ship while Jason and Frank enjoy some much needed downtime. And I got a few more interview clips lined up just like I did in part one of our best of episode. And today I focused on a few interviews that didn't just feature big name NHL guests. In fact, the first three guests really didn't have much to do with the NHL at all, but they are a Hall of Famer a head coach who's making history, and someone who created one of the most viral moments in the hockey world this year. Let's start with the Hall of Famer, though, Kim St. Pierre. And I'll be honest, I didn't know very much about Kim St. Pierre's story before she got inducted into the Hall of Fame, which is what made her interview with Jason and Frank one of my favorites from this past year. And I guess these last 18 months have provided you with a chance to also look back at your career. I know you said just before we started that you've been working on your speech. When you look back on your career, what are you most proud of? I think it's all the teammates uh, that I was able to meet through the process, either starting uh, boys hockey when I was eight years old and I played up to 18 years old with, uh, with the boys, then transitioning to women's hockey. I met some amazing women, amazing friends at McGill and then with the national team. Uh, so for me, yes, the gold medals are, are fun, the world championships too, but once you retire, your, your pers- perspective on life in hockey uh, evolves and changes. And, and I think from the day Lanny McDonald called me for, to tell me I was inducted in the Hall of Fame, it's all about the people that you met that help you um, get to where I am today. So I'm so grateful for uh, so many teammates uh, that uh, had an impact on my career and many coaches as well. 
Kim, you mentioned growing up and uh, playing with, with the boys' teams, and, and a lot of girls still do, depending on the enrollment in, in the community they play. But when, when you were growing up, there, there wasn't – there wasn't women in the hockey hall of fame and and now you know you're the first goalie uh women goalie to to go in can can you kind of just talk about maybe how different that is and 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 how much like the the opportunities for young girls now it must be so much different and, and you must hear that from the young girls today because when you were growing up like the things you've accomplished i'm not even you if you thought was possible growing up I think I was just playing hockey to play hockey. I was dreaming to play for the Montreal Canadiens and that was it. So now to see all the opportunities for a young girl that's starting to play first, just to ask the, her parents, like for me, that was a big step. Like I wonder what they, they discussed the day I, I asked them to play hockey. And, and when I started in, uh, to play hockey around like 86, 87, women's hockey was far from being, being an Olympic sport. So uh, yep. to see... Like I was so lucky to see my sport grow so much, um, see so many little girls. Now I have two boys. So when I go in the rink and I see so many girls walking in with their hockey bags on their shoulders, like it makes it so, so special to see where it's at. But so many pioneers were part of this, this, his, this history. And I think there's still a lot of work to be done just by having our own professional hockey league. Um, but definitely, uh, I, did, I never really saw it as a challenge. Like for me, if I wanted to play hockey, I had to be with the boys. So that's that's what happened. And uh, thankfully I was good enough at some point to make it, uh, to transition to women's hockey. And it gave me a lot more opportunities because I was not drafted by the Quebec Junior Major League or I never made the Midget AAA. So all these important steps I missed out. So um, I'm so happy that uh, maybe it took longer, but then at some point I was able to achieve my dream to, to be an Olympian one day. And uh, were you a goaltender right from day one? And if so, what was it about the position that intrigued you? <laughs> well, first I was a figure skater, um, but then I have two brothers and my dad would always build um, an ice, uh, a backyard uh, rink. So I got to play hockey a little more. All of our neighborhoods were, uh, was coming to play hockey. So I kind of fell in love with the sport pretty quickly. Uh, I was a good skater for, from being a figure skater. So my parents were not too excited when I asked them to be a goalie, but it just happened. I was in the dressing room getting ready for practice and someone brought some ho uh, goalie equipment and they were looking for someone to, to be a goalie that day. So. I think my parents said only one practice and then we're moving on. Uh, but then it was so fun. Uh, nothing was exciting about the equipment because it was all old and brown, but I loved it. Uh, and then I was able to get one game and then another game and finally never took off the goalie equipment. Um, so I think it's just um, destiny uh, or also I, um, I watched a lot of the Montreal Canadiens game on TV and I was always... Uh, looking more at the goalies and Patrick Roy was there and by, they won the cup. And um, so, and my dad used to be a hockey player as well. He was drafted by the New York Rangers, never made it to the NHL, but um, I think growing in a sport and hockey environment was really, uh, uh, really exciting for me. And it led me to, uh, to do great things. You mentioned your love of the Canadians, Kim, and also your dream of playing for them one day when you were a little kid. You actually got to live that for a day, practicing with the Habs in 2008. What was that experience like? Take us back to that time 
you know, we'd seen uh, Madden Rayum before you, you know, with the Tampa Bay Lightning way before you uh, break in with a, a preseason exhibition game. But to get a chance to practice with the team that you, you grew up watching, what was that like? Yeah, it was the, the closest I could come to uh, realize this dream of being a Montreal Canadiens. Actually, I was just getting ready for practice uh, with my uh, Team Canada friends from Quebec. We used to have like skills practices in the morning and I was at the rink and I got a phone call from Scott Livingston from uh, the Montreal Canadiens. He was one of their therapists and um, I used to work out with him and he helped me uh, overcome uh, hip surgery. So he knew about me and my commitment to the game. And um, that morning, Kara Price was, uh, was sick. So then he decided to call me and they were not practicing at the Bell Center. I had to go to the, the Verdun, a small, um, small town not too far from where I was. Uh, so I just walked in, got dressed, stepped on the ice and all the boys, uh, they were coming by bus because it was away from the Bell Center. So they didn't really know I was a girl. Some of them, the Quebec players, they knew me, they came and say hi, but most of them, I just think they didn't know what was going on. And um, I had so much fun, like 90 minutes of hard shots, intensity, and, and I loved uh, every minute of it. How different was it for you? Not just, you know, with the competition, but also, you know, if some of the guys didn't know who you were, like, what was the treatment like in terms of, uh, in terms of how they played where, you know, you said 90 minutes of hard shots. Did you, did you get any rockets your way? I got a few, uh, I got a few one-timers here and there, but I was so impressed how big the boys, the, the boys were because I'm 5'8", and I think the tallest on my team uh, was probably 5'11". So to see all these six six feet and more, it was quite overwhelming, especially on a, a screenshot and when you see them uh, getting ready for a one-timer. So, uh, but I wasn't scared. I had confidence in my equipment, and uh, it was so special to be there with, like, Kovalev was there and Koivu and, and so many of them. So, uh, yeah, it was a great team there. I remember being so exhausted after just for the – the stress, the emotion, and all the media that was there after as well. But it made it special to to be able to step on the ice with uh, the Montreal Canadiens. Did you get to keep your practice jersey? I actually used my own. So <laughs> it was a very last-minute thing. So uh, I just used my own, and it was from the Montreal Stars. So it was great promo from our women's team here in Montreal. Uh, but there's great pictures online. And, uh, yeah, it's a, a part of a little bit of the history. People always uh, uh, like that fact and ask so many questions about it. So, Kim, you mentioned um, you, you transitioned to the women's game kind of late, uh, you know, 18, 19. What was the – was it an easy transition? Was it harder? Because the games are very different. So what, from a goaltending perspective, what was the challenge for you when you transferred from playing with the, with the young boys in midget to then now playing with the, you know, the best women? It was, uh, it was a long process. Uh, I think the, the ladies on the Martlets uh, McGill team, they had to be patient. <laughs> uh, transitioning from boys hockey to women's hockey, the McGill program was not the best uh, yet. Um, they were like into a transition when I came in in 98. And um, previously when I was playing boys hockey, I tried out for Team Quebec to be able to represent Quebec at national championships with um, the women's team. And I was cut like four times in a row, four years in a row. They told me I was not good enough. So my mentality towards women's hockey was not great. But if I wanted to keep playing for four more or five more years, I had to go. Uh, to McGill. It was my only option. 
um, when I, once I got there, I, I asked myself a lot of questions. The pace was really slow. Sometimes we were not enough players. We had to do just half ice practice. So coming from junior double A boys hockey, uh, the shots were very slow, but I got to meet some incredible people that, that kept me motivated. And, and Peter Smith was the coach over there. And, um, he just, uh, it just gave me a lot of opportunities to, to get better, to be patient, knowing that the program would get better. And just a few weeks in, uh, when I got to Miguel, I got a call from the national team. Uh, I was a very unexpected, not being one of the best in Quebec and then being able to go and try out for Team Canada. So that day, my motivation was just really, really high. So I knew I needed to be better at Miguel to be able to have a chance with the national team. Um, but yeah, the, the shots were different, the speed of the game, everything was different, but now the program at McGill has evolved so much and, uh, uh university is so great now for, uh, for girls to, to play hockey. So Kim, would you then classify yourself as a little bit of a, of a late developer, really? When you, when you look at a lot of other players, you know, uh, maybe would have been an undrafted or a late round pick for people to get a sense of it. And then here you are, you end up being, you know, the greatest goalie Canada's ever seen. T talk about maybe your development then from the years of 18 to 22 and 23 and, and how you became so elite at that point. Yeah, I think, um, it was probably because of my parents that I never gave up. Like hockey was not my only sport. Like I loved playing soccer and fastball and I was a tennis player. So um, for me, it was all about playing sports and having fun. And for sure, hockey at some point was became my favorite sport, but I was getting very, very sad of not being drafted or not having any opportunities. And, and then I was seeing now women's hockey in the Olympics. So uh, at some point I was ready to give up on everything. Uh, but yeah, like so many stories we hear also in the NHL of some of the, the men's, uh, they just never got drafted, but at some point you almost need just one person to believe in you and give you this chance. And once you have the chance, then you have to make sure you play at your best and, and you won't have a second chance. So, uh, for me, it was Daniel Sauvageau that invited me to a team Canada training camp and, Right away, I felt that my confidence was so high and I played well. And then I got asked to play in a real game. And, um, and then once uh, I was able to make Team Canada my first year. Um, so I just think now I see my little kids are seven and nine and parents are so worried about getting extra ice time. And I just think that if you have to make it, you'll make it. For sure, it takes hard work. It takes luck sometimes as well. There's so many factors like injuries and uh, where you live and <laughs> I know money sometimes can be an issue for parents but for me it's all about if you're having fun through it you'll find a way and if it doesn't work out sport brings so many great experiences so that's why with my boys I just let them play and then um, some are really good at their age some will be better when they're uh, like 15 16 everyone goes at their own pace and I think that's what we have to respect. A fantastic interview with the now Hall of Famer Kim St. Pierre. The next chat I'm bringing you is with Jason Payne, who made history over the last year. Frank will have more on that in his intro of the segment, which you'll hear in just a second. But again, one of those interviews that I walked away from after listening to it, just with my mind blown. This guy super inspirational and is clearly one of those people who is in the game and into coaching for all of the right reasons. Here's our interview with Jason Payne. 
Our next guest was one of the big headlines of the hockey world last week, joining the Cincinnati Cyclones as the first and only, I should say, only black head coach in North America this season in professional hockey. Jason Payne from the ECHL Cincinnati Cyclones joins the DFO Rundown. Jason, how you doing? Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, guys. I'm doing great. It's been a great, uh, great week so far, and I'm looking forward to what's what's ahead. Huge news um, for the sport and for you, of course, as well, and your family. Just take us through what this last week has been like uh, with the announcement and everything that's come since. Well, when I was told uh, that I was given the position, I mean, obviously, there's a little bit of excitement from all the work that I've put uh, in my in my career for this, and then just knowing that what the possibilities lie ahead. First of all, you know, obviously for it being one of the only uh, coaches in North America, but, you know, just the, the, the work I put in and just to know what's ahead with the media press, the, uh, you know, people coming at you, wanting to uh, interviews. And so it's, it's, it's humbling. It's exciting. I enjoy it. And uh, I'm just very thankful for it. So talk to us about your road to this point. Uh, you know, I, every hockey guy you come across, you got to look at the hockey DP page or the elite prospects page and, I'm looking here, Jason, was there a league in North America that you didn't play in <laughs> along the way or coach in or stop in in some way? Well, I had to take stops in a lot of them just to see if I liked it or not. And, uh, <laughs> and if to see if they liked me. So, uh, you know, it was fun. It was a lot of it. It was a lot of adventures. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, just going bouncing from the United League to Colonial League uh, where I started. Um, the old IHL with the Vipers and, uh, and Fort Wayne was in there at one time. Kalamazoo K-Wings. Uh, Las Vegas Thunder, that, that was a great league back then. Uh, to the East Coast League, I played a, a numerous amount of teams. Started, I was, I was in Dayton, I was in Florida, I was in Arkansas, Wheeling, Redding. Uh, you know, it was, I was all over New Orleans. So, you know, I, was, I traveled a lot there and into the American League, just bounced around, you know, St. John, Flames, uh, Worcester Ice Cats, uh, Cincinnati Mighty Ducks, you know, a call, call up to the Carolina Monarchs where, uh, I played with a good friend of yours, Kevin Weeks, who's a great friend of mine. Um, yeah, so it was, you know, it was a lot of adventures. You met a lot of people, but, you know, established a lot of trusting and, and great relationships. So, Jason, when, when you bounce around and, and you play in a lot of different leagues for a lot of different teams, uh, I'm sure, you, you know, you, you had a lot of different coaches as well. Were, were you, I'm always intrigued by certain guys. Some players never think about coaching, while others, they plan for it kind of, five years before they're done playing they're taking notes certain coaches we've had on like they collected notebooks when they played of all the different systems because they thought that was something they wanted to do were you the guy with an eye on coaching at all times or is it something that just kind of fell in your lap you know once you were done playing i mean that's a good question but for me the style of hockey i played a lot of it was spent uh, on the bench <laughs> so you got to watch the game and understand it and listen to what the coaches are saying and and mind you, the game has changed so much since when I played, but, you know, I think the whole thing for me was the development. You know, you want to keep developing and as the game got, you know, went on and progressed, you had to keep evolving with the game. You know, you couldn't be just the enforcer anymore. You couldn't be just that guy. You had to be able to, to play the game. You had to be able to do the things to keep you in the game. So, you know, I had to continuously evolve my skills and continue to develop. So that became a, something that, that a passion to my, for me. And uh, when I got back, uh, from playing hockey and I decided to shut it down. I said, you know what, let me, I opened my hockey school where I started training, uh, training young hockey players myself. And then I started getting into coaching as well too, because 
it was another way, another avenue of training players to be hockey players, but developing them the real way to play hockey and not just, you know, with those minor hockey ways that, you know, oh, do it this way, do it that way. So then when they get to the next level of junior or is it pro, they're lost because they don't understand the real concepts of how the game is played at the next level. So again, it was about that development uh, philosophy that really got me intrigued. And then I really wanted to keep giving back, giving back to the, to the young players uh, that were coming up. So it, it was, it was, it was definitely a journey and I, but I enjoy it. You mentioned how the game has changed a lot since you played. It's extremely different, especially in the minors. Like back when you played in the minor pros, man, it was, you know, I'm not sure if you've, you've seen the documentary or not, but the crime and penalties, like it was, it was crazy at times in different leagues of, of how many real tough guys there were and just, you know, so many guys literally fighting to try to make their way to the National Hockey League. Now it's, it's very different. You know, there's, there's very limited fighting in the NHL and obviously it's got a trickle down effect. There's much less in the minors so coaching the game because you played that role there's still you know there's still tough guys and intimidation in the game but what what's your strength as a coach what have you learned Jace because a lot of times some people say wow geez he didn't score a lot so he can't teach offense I don't really agree with that so how have you evolved and what have you learned as a coach that you feel you're better now as a coach than when you started regardless of the role you played well from when I played listen you talk about the crime punishment like like a lot of those guys are, are guys that I've went to war with and, you know, it, we're, I'm familiar with a lot of them, but yes, the game has definitely changed. And for me, what I bring to the, what I like to bring to this game is you, you got to change it. It's about perseverance. It's about dedication, commitment, but it's about getting to know the player. You have to be able to relate to the players of today's game. So it's not like back in the day where you can just tell somebody, go do this. And they're expected to understand what they're supposed to do. You know, you have to give them the whys. They need to know why. There's a process to everything, and they need to know why and what, what the process is about. And it's about relating to the players. You know, today's players are different. They're wired differently. They need to know things. You know, they're, they're the internet age where they can look at their phone or look at their iPad and get any answers they want. We want to understand the players so we can understand them as a person, get to know them as a person, then we can help understand them as a player and help develop them as a player. So that is what I like to bring. And I like, I work hard for my players. They want, I want them to work hard for me. You know, the same thing that like Rod Brindamore does. He's, he's out there, he's in the gym, he's training every morning with his players. He's getting on the ice. He's skating hard. That's what, that's how I am. You know, I'm in the gym. I tell my players, you want to work out? I'm working out too. See if you can lift more than me. We're on the ice. Okay. See if you can shoot harder than me. I'm skating up. Whatever you do, I'm not going to ask my players to do something that I wouldn't be willing to do. So I want them to go out there and I want them to leave it on the ice and work as hard as they can. Cause the harder they work for me, they'll, they'll know that I'm working tenfold, even harder for them. I love that. You see the passion that brings out, you know, from a guy like Rod Brindamore and his players as well. Wanted to ask you again about your path. It's been what, 12 years since you hung up your skates. And again, taking a look at the, the hockey DB page, you've had a, a few different, uh, sort of, you know, roles and jobs, skills coach, assistant coach, skating coach, all sorts of different things, uh, junior leagues uh, throughout Ontario, OHL. And then you end up uh, in Cincinnati a couple of years back with Matt Thomas. How did you get there? And, and what was it like along the way over these last 11 years, sort of scrapping and, and getting by with lots of different roles and opportunities? It's a, you said it, scrapping and getting by. It's, it's not an easy road. Uh, you know, when I was done playing, you, you go, you get around, you got to establish relationships, you meet people, 
you work different roles, learn the game more. I went back to the grassroots to just get a, get a real idea and a handle of what today's players are like and teaching and developing them. And it builds you up. You go to different, you go to the OHL, you go to different junior roles. I was a GM. I was an assistant coach. I was a head coach. I was a scout. I was a skills coach. You do all the jobs. Cause I think in this world of hockey, if you know all the jobs, I mean, not necessarily have to master them, but if you want to understand the real world of hockey, you got to know what every job pretty much requires and it entails. So if you do, then you're a little bit more educated when it comes time to speak to whoever it is, if it's GMs, players, parents, scouts, agents, you know, cause you can talk to them in their language. So, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade in for the world and it's developed me and helped me push me to where I am today. And, you know, in regards to my job here, it was, it's funny how it happened, but Again, you know, I wanted to make it to the next level. I wanted to get, I was pushing and, and, you know, doors were closing on me. Doors were closing and you wonder why, you wonder what's happening. What am I doing wrong? Do I got to keep pushing. And uh, Matt Thomas was is a, an old friend of mine from, we played hockey together growing up in AAA. And we then played together in uh, junior hockey a little bit with a very brief time with St. Mike's Buzzers. And he went on to RITs to college and I went on to play pro. And, but we've always stayed in touch. And then when he went into coaching and as I was coaching uh, in the junior level, you know, I would help you know, him with recruiting and talking to people, anybody he was interested in to recruit to his school. So we always stayed in touch. And again, we're in the people business. It's a relationship. It's all about relationships. And, you know, he got his lucky break where, you know, he was able to get, uh, find a job now with Cincinnati. He needed somebody for his, in his eyes were qualified that would work hard and was dedicated and they, he called me and, you know, my opportunity uh, was presented to me and he had to run it through Buffalo Sabres and, you know, everything was approved. They were everything, they approved it. And, you know, we went from there. We went on that year to, um, I think we were, we were in the all-star game. I finished first place overall in the league. And we've, we've pretty much been coaching, coaching our butts off and trying to develop our players here. But, you know, now perseverance shows itself, you know, Matt's been doing it for 17 years. He's been in the NCAA. He's been, He's been in the ECHL. He's won coach of the year. He's won championships here and he's never gotten an opportunity. And now he's gotten that opportunity in the American league with uh, Providence Bruins with Ryan Mujanel, who's another friend of ours, who's an old teammate of mine as well too. And you know what? It's, he's what it's well-deserved. And if there's anybody who's more deserving of it, it's him. And, you know, for him to give me my, my first shot here, you know, cutting my teeth at uh, coaching at the pro level, you know, I'm, I'm forever grateful and thankful. And, uh, and I'm, I'm a whole, he, he tells me all the time, you know, you didn't let me down. Cause I knew when you came in, you, that you'd work and it's putting yourselves in the right position at the right time. And, and fortunate for me, you know, the cards and the chips fell as they may. And, and here I am today. So tell me about, uh, Jason, the, the environment there in Cincinnati, because as you're working your butt off, as you said, you know, you've got Kristen Ropp, the, the general manager there, who's the only female GM in uh, men's professional hockey. So do you feel like, you know, with the opportunities that, that you're getting there, it's just a fresh set of eyes, a different outlook approach. You know, someone may be willing to do things a little bit outside the box and different. Uh, and obviously she saw you and got a chance to work with you up close and personal. Oh yeah. Kristen Rob's amazing. And, you know, for the record, she like, I think she's a, she's a trailblazer when it comes to that. Um, you know, there's more GMs that are, you know, coming around this in our league, uh, Kalamazoo K wings just uh, announced another fee, their female GM. So, you know, kudos to them. And, you know, it's, it's breaking, it's groundbreaking. And, and I love to see it. And it's, it's opening up the doors to, you know, the diversity of it. And for, for Kristen, it's not about, 
you know, men or women. It's she just wants the best people. And for her to, for, to work for Kristen is unbelievable. I, I couldn't ask for anything more. Such a professional environment, such a great environment, such a welcome, warm environment, a family environment. And when you have that, it's welcoming. You have the players. They, they want to come to the arena. Players want to come here. They want to come play here. We want to come to the arena every day because it's, it's such a, a great environment to work in. So, you know, I'm so thankful for Kristen that, that she's the kind of person that she is. And, you know, overall, the whole organization, you know, our owner, Ray Harris, is, is one of the best owners in the league in, in, my, in my eyes. And I'm very thankful that, you know, they've given me the opportunity to, to coach this team. Jason, Frank alluded to it off the top, uh, you know, being a black head coach right now in hockey and in pro hockey in North America is pretty rare. So, you know, congratulations for that. At the, at the same time, have you experienced, you know, is, is it a challenge at all? Because, you know, we know that racism is, is, has diminished from where it was. We, we made some progress. We're not remotely close to where we should be as a society. But do you do you sense that at all? Is it a challenge in, in a still a predominantly white sport to be a black head coach it is definitely a challenge i mean there's no there's no ways around it but i think for myself the the way i view it is you've just got to be a great person the better person you are the more opportunity you give yourself for doors to open and let's break down those barriers and eventually when you're when you're that good a person no one wants to see color they just want to see how good you are and what in the work, body of work you can put in and so don't give anybody an opportunity or anything to have anything that's negative to say about you or blemishes to your record. Just be a good person. Right? We're in a people business. Uh, you know, it's, it's an old saying, you know, you got to get the person right before you get the player right. You got to get the person right before you can get the coach right. You know, when you get to know somebody, you get to know the personality, you can relate. Then and, and, and that <laughs> only then can you really get to the person that you really want or the coach or player that you really want. On part one of the best of, I joked about how listening to Brad Larson talk made me want to run through a wall for Brad Larson and the head coach of the Columbus Blue Jackets. It's the same thing with Jason Bain. You listen to that guy talk and and you just can't help but be inspired. And damn, I want to play for that guy. I want that guy as my coach. Uh, the next interview I'm going to throw to is with AJ Galante. And I'll be honest, after I watched the documentary and then I heard Frank was getting him on the show for us, my jaw hit the floor. This dude is wildly entertaining. And the Danbury Trashers documentary was definitely one of the most viral pieces of hockey content that we got this season endlessly entertaining and the chat between Frank and AJ was well it was exactly what you'd expect straight up entertaining here's a clip from that interview I got a chance to to watch the doc and and obviously it's been such a, a big talking point it's so popular especially in hockey social media circles what did you think of the doc when you first saw it and um how did this all come about well that's a great I mean you know to be honest with you I watched it when it came out on Tuesday. So I, I didn't have any like early access to it, um, which was, which was nerve wracking to be honest with you. Cause you know, we, uh, you know, McLean and Chapman way, the way brothers who produced the whole untold series for Netflix, McLean reached out to me. I believe it was the end of 2018. And, um, you know, he, he kind of pitched this whole idea and I, I kind of put him off, put him off, put him off. And finally he just kept, He's like, AJ, I, I really want to talk to you. I, I, I'm telling you this story can be huge. So I, I we, you know, we talked to him and uh, he was convinced that they could do something incredible with the story. And um, I guess so far, so good. I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to keep up with 
all the notifications and, and the updates and it, it's insane, but uh, it's just a very humbling experience right now. What did you think of the job they did? Was it accurate? Did they portray things? Oh, you know, I, I, I tell you, um, with documentaries, I learned, you know, sometimes there's some embellishments here and there, but I got to tell you, they were, they were spot on. And I think that's just a type of producers they are. I and mean, they told me from day one, they're extremely honest people. Um, because, you know, there's a lot of facets to the stories, layers to the stories that can get a little, get a little tough for, for us to speak about. But, um, I got to tell you, I mean, they kept their word with everything. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was, it was spot on. Were there any which, parts, which, which, which might seem crazy for people, but yes, it was, it was spot on. <laughs> I mean, there were certainly some parts I was like, Holy smokes. I can't believe that was real. Um, were there any parts of the story that, that in your mind didn't get told? Like, were there parts left out? Oh, I mean, so many different, so many, I mean, they told me they, they actually like, it's funny. They told me when they pitched this to Netflix at first, they were little 50, 50 on doing the story. Cause we're not, we're not a big name. We're not a big team. And they wanted like big names, you know, and, uh, they just fought for us, you know, these guys. And, uh, you know, they, but to go back to your question, they, they had a cut down. We're, we're actually the longest of all five untold docs at uh, like an hour and 25 minutes. And they said, AJ, we had like 30 extra minutes we wanted to use, but Netflix had to cut us down. I mean, so many stories. I mean, uh, when the NHL tried to sue us after the first year, um, you know, some of the other pranks and stuff, you know, T-Bone and I used to do together. I mean, just, I mean, there's just way too much, way too much to talk about. Seriously. It was insane. Well, let's dive into some of that. Cause actually that was one of my questions was, um, you know, we saw the reaction uh, from the United hockey league and, and actually the commissioner was one of the great heel turns uh, you know, for me watching it. Cause I, I got, you see him talk and you're like, okay, this is definitely heading down this path. And then at the end, he's like, yeah, like nothing but respect for, for the Galantes and their family and what they did for the league and everything. And so I was a little bit surprised to see that reaction towards the end. But from your perspective, what was the other reaction from other leagues? You know, I'm sure everyone was noticing what you guys were doing, the AHL, the NHL. What was happening at, at that time? Refresh our memory and, and tell us some stories. Well, we were... I mean, it's, it's, I feel like I've said it a thousand times we, we were the bad boys. And I tell you, we, um, we lived up to the moniker. We, uh, we embraced it. We had players that loved it, embraced it. And, uh, we were one of those guys, we were, we were those guys that, you know, kind of like one of those players that, you know, like the Sean Avery's of the world where, by the way, we tried to trade for Sean Avery that first season. That's a whole nother story. But you know, the, the thing is we were the team that we, Everyone hated us so bad, but you couldn't help but like it in a way. And people love to hate us. And uh, you know what? If that got more eyeballs to the league, if that got more, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a firm believer. You know, my dad always taught me no, no press is bad press. And uh, frankly, we, we, we kind of ran with that. And uh, I think it was after the Chad Wagner incident. And I believe it was Oh five when he went after uh the Adirondack coach at the time, Mark Potvin. And uh, that's when we were on the front page of the Toronto star. And it was like, what the hell are these guys doing down there? That's kind of when the tipping point for us and, and people were just 
and especially the purists, they were just disgusted with us, with our antics, with, uh, they didn't believe that, uh, there should be as much fighting. A lot of them didn't believe in fighting at all, obviously. And it was, uh, it was just crazy. And, uh, the NHL definitely had some issues. And, uh, I remember going into our second season. It's a true story. And, and no one really knows it. We, we were going into our second year and we're sitting there, me and my dad are eating McDonald's and, uh, our, uh, our, our director of, uh, you know, media and our play by play announcer, Phil Jubileo came in with a fax and he, he put it on the table. He's like, Hey guys, uh, you know, he was nervous about bringing it to us. He goes, Hey guys, uh, this just came in. You know, you see the uh, NHL seal at the top, you know, Gary Bettman, this and that. And uh, basically in, in layman's terms and in stupid people terms, what they were saying in fancy words were we had to change our name and that we were, you know, we were too close to the Atlanta thrashers and uh, you know, it was funny to me that a, that a league that was just coming off a, a season long lockout, they couldn't get their stuff together. We're worried about what, what, what a trash can logo was doing. And uh, you know what? Me and my dad, we thought about it. We talked about it and we were trying to like, how are we going to, how are we going to respond to this? So basically, and this is a true story. We had Phil Jubileo put together in, in nice educated words that, we understand their grievance. And um, if they would like us to, we would have no problem flying in the Atlanta Thrashers to Danbury and we would play them for the name. And, you know, here's the reality, Frank, you're not a stupid guy. I mean, we would have lost the game, but we would have beat them up so bad to send a message to the NHL and they would have beat us. And, and look, if we tried to fight it in court, we would have been screwed with legal fees. They, they, you know, the NHL, they, they print money. So we were in a tough spot, but we sent the facts to them. It's like mystery Alaska. Like, come on, bring the NHL in and play us. Well, we offered, no, it's a true story. We offered, my dad offered to fly in the whole thrashers organization. And we said, Hey, listen, we'll make it an exhibition in the preseason. You guys need good press as it is. Why don't you guys look like, you know, we were trying to package it. Like we wanted to work together, but in reality, we were going to beat them up and they were going to take our name or they were going to fight. We were going to, we were going to go down swinging literally on it. So they never responded to the, to the offer. I mean, look, I'm not saying Gary Bettman saw the, saw the, saw the, the challenge, but somebody in that office saw it and uh, it kind of just all went away. So then they never said anything about the name again. Never. And frankly, you know, in reality, unfortunately, after our second season, we had to disband anyway. So the problem went away from them. But, you know, the thrashers are sitting where the trashers are right now. So it really doesn't matter. Well, that's what I was going to say. So after all that, like the trash, like no one's making a Netflix talk about the thrashers. I mean, what's up yeah. with that? Like you guys may have ultimately been more popular and created more of a buzz than an actual NHL franchise did in the Atlanta thrashers. And I think that probably goes to, to say something. And I was going to ask you about sort of the brand and style that you guys played, you know, a lot of people, you know, the, the debate with fighting in the NHL has gone on forever. And, and the game now is so different than what it looked like even in 2004. Yes. But 
there has to be something to be said for the popularity, like what you guys were able to create in Danbury with your team, how wildly successful that team. Danbury wasn't a hockey town before you guys started. And, no. and, and then now you, you build it into something. It has to say something about the brand and style that you played, not just the wins. Well, that's the thing is, you know, again, and I, I talked about it in the documentary. I, I grew up, my first love was pro wrestling. And the thing about pro wrestling was I always liked the bad guys, you know, the heels. And uh, to me, they always made the biggest impact. And, you know, when me, my, and again, the other thing people don't understand is we winged this whole thing. You know, we didn't have like real elaborate meetings and we didn't have like a big whiteboard or chalkboard and mapping things out. We just winged it. Every, everything we did, honest to goodness, what we winged it. And we said, Hey, listen, we're not a hockey town. No one, cares too much about hockey anyway. How are we going to market this to people that never had this before? So we really wanted to bring that entertainment element. And, uh, you know, look, it's a different time. You know, back then, there were people that liked that darkness. There was people that wanted those bad boys. And uh, we just rolled with it. And, uh, you know, it, it's I, I took a lot of lessons I learned through watching pro wrestling through the years of uh, being a heel and this and that. And that's what we wanted. So what was the toughest part for you? You said you guys were winging it. You know, you're there. We see you, you know, looking on hockey DB and, and checking out stats. What was the toughest part for you putting the team together? Did you lean on anyone throughout the process? Oh, sure. I mean, it, you know, I get a lot of credit for this stuff, but we had a, we had a great team around us. You know, everyone, everyone was equals with us in the, I guess, front office. You know, that sounds so pro professional. We were in a front office. We were just like a bunch of bunch of lunatics, you know, meeting in a room. But, uh, you know, we had a great team around us. You know, obviously, T-Bone, Tommy Pompasello, our equipment manager, played a, played a huge role in uh, certain contacts. And, you know, look, you, you know, you strap on your work boots and you, you figure a way, you know, you, you find. And, you know, it was harder back then. There wasn't social media. You couldn't just look anyone up and send them a direct message. I mean, it was different. So there was no video really to watch online. No, no. I mean, you, you really had to go with a lot of, you know, word of mouth. You had to do a lot of, you know, I studied a lot on how, I mean, hockey DB, my God. I mean, I used to be on that website 24 seven. I mean, how do you, how do you like compose a team like that? Especially the first year. Cause I didn't know anyone and, and uh, you know, it changed a little bit the second year, but you just find a way you find a way. And, and, you know, the way I looked at it is in baseball terms, I was the starting pitcher and my dad was the closer. You know, I would bring him these ideas. Hey, these are the type of players and you got deals done and we just, we just made it happen. I mean, the amazing part through all that is you put together a winner, like that team won. How, like, does that, yeah. does that still, does it blow your mind at all that, you know, someone that doesn't have any sort of experience in it, is able to sort of walk through it. And like you said, you know, you got some help from your dad and others behind the scenes in terms of closing things, but putting that all together and actually having a successful team, it's one thing to be intimidating. It's one thing to, you know, beat everyone up, but to also win. Well, that was always, you know, as I get older, you know, when I was 17, 18 years old, the cool thing was always the, the, the craziness. But as I get older, I just turned 35 a few weeks ago. It's amazing. Um, I learned to appreciate just how good we, like you said, we were. And it was like the dirty little secret that we would win a game seven to two. 
And the next day, all it was about was, oh, wow, Wingfield, you know, try to put a guy through the glass or this guy through his helmet. You know, the dirty secret was we were racking up points every night, you know, two points, you know, uh, shootouts. You know, it was um, I- I've learned to really appreciate that as I've gotten older that, hey, look, the team was actually really good. And, um, you know, the, it, it's it's. Everything and you know what it was when you're building a team. A lot of it is the personalities, and um, honestly, in the two full seasons, training camps, uh, regular seasons, postseasons, Colonial Cup finals. I mean, we never had many disputes between teammates. Everyone, we had a very tight knit group. We had a group that you know, look, any team, not everyone's going to get along with each other, but we had a team that understood what we were all trying to do. And um, I got to tell you, I mean, we, we really, everyone got along. And that was, I think, a huge thing, too, is that the chemistry, if the chemistry is not there, you know, you, you could have three goal scores on one line. It's just not going to work, you know, if the chemistry is not there. So we just, you know, light, you know we, we struck lightning in a bottle with a lot of different things. But that, that's actually what blows my mind is that it's not like you had some – deep scouting staff that was, you know, doing their due diligence on their, these players and their personalities and like how that all comes together. It's almost like you said, lightning in a bottle. It's a happy accident that, you know, you get all these guys that buy into the trasher way of you. They, they knew what you were trying to do. And it's almost like, you know, you could even kind of see it in Mike Rupp's face. It's like, ah, I'm in, like, I'll do it. You know what it is? I think these guys, and you're right. Look, here's the reality. I mean, I, I, I really appreciate, you know, people give me so much credit and, and I'm not that smart. You know, we got lucky with a lot of things too. I mean, the NHL lockout the first year really was a big thing for us uh, advantage. And like you said, sometimes you make things happen and it's just the stars are aligned sometimes and it works. And, uh, but you know what, when we talk to these guys for the first time, if we finally make contact with them directly or through agents, you know, I think they realize right away we're not like the atypical front office. And uh, I think they realize we're one of them. And, uh, I, you know, they can call me up and say, hey, AJ, we're going to play video games when you get back from school this weekend. You know, I'm going to beat you. And, I mean, we, I would, we would literally have, you know, NHL 2004 tournaments on PlayStation in the locker room. You know, I'd be right in the mix. I won a lot, by the way. Um, <laughs> And you know what, man, we just, we were one of them and they were one of us. And and I think when they realized that, man, this is not a suit and tie, not that there's anything wrong with that. This isn't like a suit and tie operations where, you know, if you have a bad game, we're cutting you, you know, they just realized, Hey, this is like, this is a family. This is, this is, this is incredible. And, um, and it was we fun. Hung the, we, we hung out all the time. I mean, we'd have to kick guys out of the locker room after games because everyone would be watching TV. Uh, you know, Ruman Ender would want to play FIFA on PlayStation and this one would want to play NHL. We had to get two TVs at one point. And uh, I mean, it was just everyone loved to be there together. And look, not everything was, was uh, you know, Reesey PC all the time, but we just got along. Everyone, everyone had the same mentality and we, we had the same cause. 
And to wrap things up here on part two of our best of series on the DFO rundown, we'll bring it right back to the NHL and a chat that Frank and Jason had with the GM of the Carolina Hurricanes, Don Waddell. And he talked a lot about the state of the Hurricanes and the culture they have there. But the clip I'm going to play for you includes his rapid fire and also his take on kind of what it takes to make a big trade in the NHL and his mindset when he does make a big move. You mentioned that when you're not playing and this season more than ever, you know, you're only playing teams in your division, Don, have you found it harder? Like we're, we're getting closer to the trade deadline. Like, are you going to have to trust your scouts more? Do you have to go back and watch video just because you're like, usually you would see these teams at some point, but now you're not. How, how much of a challenge is that uh, heading into the trade deadline for a very good team? No, I think it's uh, a great question because, uh, you know, the way we're set up uh, and we have been, you know, we have some scouts on the road, but, but we have a whole set of scouts that are just video scouts and well, they all have teams. So you're going to rely on their reports. And then, you know, yesterday we, anytime a player comes up of an interest, then we, that, we, you know, get everybody on the phone and let's talk about it. So it's a little bit more of a challenge, but I think this is where, again, if you get good people in your organization, they're dedicated to what they're doing and, and you trust their opinion you know, we're very collaborative here. Everybody's involved in decisions. When we make a decision, obviously somebody's got to be held accountable for it, and that's me. But we all, uh, you know, nobody, one person makes a decision here. Everybody's involved. Don, how would you describe Don Waddell, the GM, when it comes to trades? Are you like, are you an aggressive guy? Do you, do you, do you, you play, do you slow play it? Uh, you know, how has that evolved, you know, the, the conversation when it comes to trades over the years for you as a GM? Well, I've made a lot of them and I made a lot of big ones. Uh, you know, I, I always joke, there's a few guys uh, over the years, if you trade, if you call them and act, offer them a first round pick for a third round pick, they'll have to tell you, they'll get back to you. Um, you know, so I look at, you know, you have to know what you want. And, you know, everybody's worried about, uh, we all are about, you know, what you're giving up. But I always say, uh if you're going after the player, you know which guys you can afford to give up, but don't worry so much about uh, what you're giving up as much as what you're getting. And if you're getting something that really helps your hockey team that everybody's uh, on board with, just go get it done. So I, I feel like once those conversations start and you start focusing on, I've always felt that uh, we'll be able to get a deal done. Do you feel like with with that motto sort of driving you that you might be a little bit more aggressive or willing to tinker with your team than most? Yeah, I think so. I, I think that's, uh, you know, uh, let's face it. I have an owner, Tom Dunnan, that's uh, very uh, passionate about the team, uh, likes to uh, be involved, know what's going on and everything else. And, you know, he, his, his, he we won eight games in a row. And, you know, he wants to know why we didn't win nine games in a row. He's a driver uh, in a good way. And so, you know, he always you know, he's a challenge every day. You know, who have you talked to? What's going on in the hockey world? And, um, you know, he wants to be as best as we possibly can. You know, we're a team that spends the cap and wants to be at the cap for for a long time. Uh, so, you know, he's committing the, the dollars, the resources to give it this best opportunity. So we have to make sure that we're on top of things uh, that can potentially make our hockey team better. So when you with- talked about it. Oh, sorry, Frank, go ahead. No, no problem. With that challenge in mind, like, what are you looking at? Like, if in an ideal world, is there a position or hole that you'd like to fill for your team at this deadline? Yeah, you know, like, like everybody, you know, we, we really like our team. Uh, you know, we got a few injuries right now we're fighting. But, 
you know, a right-hand shot defenseman, I'm going to be honest, would be something that uh, I've asked around about. Um, and then, you know, another top nine forward, potentially, uh, easier said than done. Uh, but, you know, uh, as you go through this, especially this short year, our roster, uh, we've played now half the season. We've played one game with our full roster, and that was opening night. Since opening night, between COVID and injuries, uh, we haven't had our full roster. So, you know, ho- hopefully at some point we get that back. But the way the season is and everybody's dealing with it, you know, you're going to have some other issues. So we're also looking at all our, all our positions from a depth standpoint to see is there some guys that are out there that we can maybe just take the money. Um, you know, we're not in the business too much right now of trading too many assets. It's, we traded a lot last year at the deadline to get some of the guys. Uh, so, um you know, right shot defenseman, top nine forward, and maybe potentially some depth is what we'd be focused on. Don, you mentioned you made some big trades over the years. Obviously, you know, the Heatley for Hosa, two legit scores. Trades like that just don't happen very often in the NHL. Your recent one with Calgary was a big one. Take me back to the Heatley Hosa. Like, how long does it take when you when you have like two legit you know, scores going the other way. Was that a quick or was that like weeks and weeks of conversation before that trade was finally finalized? Uh, that was about uh, Brian Murray and I did that deal in less than 24 hours uh, because we also knew that when you're dealing with these high profile guys that, you know, you guys in the media love these stories. And so uh, I, I, I truly don't remember, but I don't think that ever broke before we made it because it happened very quickly. You know, obviously Danny Heatley, uh, uh, was drafted by us, was a great player for us. Unfortunately, uh, we all know what happened. And, you know, the change of scenery, uh, his agent at the time just said, you know, it might make sense if there's an uh, opportunity. And that was on the weekend. I can remember it was a weekend. And then I wasn't surprised at all by the phone call. And so on, uh, uh, I believe it was a Monday, if I remember right, um, you know, I, t- I told his agent, I said, you know, I'll, uh, I'll check around and, and, you know, the agent was pretty on top of things and said, uh, you know, Ottawa might be in a, for a, a, a look at this too. So I didn't, Brian Murray and I talked one morning and I think by eight o'clock that night, we had the deal figured out and we announced it and moved on. So how much does trust play a role as a general manager. So when you're having conversations, as I know there's lots of times where players names, you know, you're discussing, I like this guy, but we might have to give up him if a team asks for this guy or that, that, that you trust the guys you're talking to don't leak that out. And then suddenly it comes back and your guys in his room saying, what you want to trade me? How, how do you deal with that? And if you ever got burnt by that, did it, did it, were you leery to, to negotiate with a certain guy again? Well, what happens for everybody, um, you know, you try to keep things, you know, there are certain GMs when you talk to them, they say, you know, uh, you know, please keep this quiet. And, and you, you might talk to, you know, very few people, one or two people and, and not any emails or texts or anything about it. Just, you know, a couple phone calls because it is a dangerous thing. Um, I've been on both sides of it and it's not fun. That's for sure. You know, you know, when you're, when you start throwing things out to your group I and mean, it's 15, 18 people, tendencies it's going to get out and that's what you want to you don't want to happen so uh i've been involved with the deal even uh, recently where they just asked that team uh try to you know keep it out and you know there's only a few people in the organization we've talked about it so uh you know you got to try to respect that as much as you can because you could be on the other side of it too so 
I think, you know, through the years, this has gotten a lot better. Um, I can remember days in Atlanta where you pick up the phone and call somebody and within an hour, you know, you're hearing about it uh, through the media. So I think it's gotten better and we got to continue to uh, try to protect each other's privacy. I thought you were going to try and give us a, a, a plug to the insiders there, like like the talent that's involved with getting that information out. Well, there's no doubt you guys are the best. Uh, you know, Frank, I know I know you work it daily and hourly, uh, and I know that I respect that's your your job to uh, find information. And you know, it, again, you know, especially with players today with no trades and all that, just more of the agents are involved. There's a lot of people, and I know, uh, you know, if I was sitting in your seat. You know, I'd be doing the same thing because obviously you'd be want to be the person or, or your organization to be able to break news like that. So I, I respect it. I, I don't ever have a problem. I mean, uh, people call and text me all the time and I try to give them what I can give them without giving them much uh, that's really uh, sensitive. And that'll do it for part two of the best of series here on the DFO Rundown. I hope you all enjoyed the holiday season. I hope you're all enjoying the World Juniors action as well. And it's been a fantastic tournament so far. We'll be back in the new year with brand new episodes twice a week of the DFO Rundown. And we look forward to you tuning in and downloading along for another fantastic year of Hockey Talk with Jason and Frank. For both of them and also our sponsors, DoorDash and FansFirst.ca, I'm Tyler Uremchuk saying Happy New Year, and we'll talk to you in 2022. Thanks for listening to the DFO Rundown with Saravali and Gregor. Keep it locked on dailyfaceoff.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to never miss an episode. Delivered by DoorDash. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special coming your way this playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge. And let me tell you, it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal. Every playoff game day, you're going to be faced with four questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle. 
And here's a sneak peek into some of those questions we'll be firing your way. First up, you got to pick the winning team. That sounds simple, right? But there's more. You got to decide if the total amount of goals in the game will be over or under a certain amount. And that's where the real strategy starts to kick in. Next up, you're picking who's going to find the back of the net first. And you're going to want to be careful because that's one that could be cooked early on in the game. And finally, you got to predict which period is going to be the highest scoring. Will it be a barn burner in the first, a shootout in the second, or a nail biter in the third? That's up to you to decide. Now let's talk about prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? For the daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards to treat yourself to some fresh nation gear, and you might even win a jersey from your favorite team. And for the big dogs, those who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge. Play now at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess.